Welcome to the 27th episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is The Path to Independence in Two Steps or One with Alex Goss of Goss Wealth Management. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com and on wealthmanagement.com, as well as iTunes and other resources. Every prospective breakaway grapples with the decision of whether to go independent with a broker-dealer or as an RIA. For many, the choice becomes clear when there's a specific driver motivating them that clearly points in one direction or the other. For example, if an advisor wants to be independent, but feels strongly about having guardrails in place, desires more turnkey support and transition money, and has more than a small percentage of commission-based business, he'd likely gravitate more toward the independent broker-dealer space. Conversely, consider an advisor whose business is almost all fee-based and who wants maximum customization. He has designs on building an enterprise by adding inorganic growth to the mix and is laser-focused on the long-term. He would likely be much better served in the RIA space. But for more than a few advisors, the choice is not that clear. Their business could actually thrive under either model. This is the perfect example of what our guests struggled with. In this episode, we're speaking with Alex Goss, the president of Goss Wealth Management and the CEO of hybrid RIA, Goss Advisors, a $6 billion powerhouse based in New Orleans. Alex met that very challenge head on, not once, but twice. His path began in the wirehouse world, then he moved on to the independent broker-dealer space before starting his own RIA, which is now one of the leading platforms for prospective advisors. Also joining me today is Lewis Diamond, my son, Executive Vice President and Senior Consultant at our firm, and someone who is very familiar with Alex's firm and its value proposition. Lewis has worked directly with Alex and his team, identifying advisors who have strong interest in a model such as the one Goss has built. That is, offering the opportunity to join a turnkey RIA platform with compliance, operations, and technology in place so the advisors can get up and running quickly while retaining 100% ownership of their business. Given Lewis's strong background in the space and relationship with Alex, I thought it would be ideal to have him lead the conversation. So Lewis, take it away. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Everything you said about Alex and his firm is true. Given his journey, Alex has a unique ability to take the advisor's perspective and objectify the most relevant differences between the IBD and RIA spaces. His story is really interesting, so let's jump right into our conversation. Alex, thank you so much for taking the time today to speak with us. Yeah, I appreciate it. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So let's get started. The first question I have for you is, are you able to walk us through your journey from starting in the business at a wirehouse to then transitioning to the independent broker-dealer space, and now finally to the RA space where you're running Goss Advisors and Goss Wealth Management? Yeah, I'm uh, happy to share that journey because it definitely was a journey. I think all advisors that start on this journey 
begin it when they hit kind of what we call the advisor glass ceiling in the wirehouses. And that's really what happened to us. You know, we were a pretty large team, not the largest, but, you know, three advisors doing about $4 million of production and about half, about $500 million under management. We were really struggling in the B2 wire model to run our business. Because once you start to be kind of that size and scale, you know, you have more demand from your clients. You're trying to do new things and continually to reinvent yourself. And in the wirehouse model, you're so restricted from, from a payout standpoint, from your ability to hire people, to add team members, new technology, all those things. It really becomes difficult to grow. And I think what most advisors first attempt is, well, I'm going to start a team. I'll find somebody else that's really successful and we'll team together. And what we found, we kind of thought about doing that. What we realized is that two busy people coming together doesn't necessarily create more time. It just means two busy people working together. So what we see for ourselves and what I see for advisors is in the same space is that the only solution, and really they're victims of their own success. They're very good at growing a business and servicing those clients so it continues to grow. And then at some point, growth or service begins to suffer. And the only solution is more time. And the only way you get more time is by either having less clients or hiring actual, almost employee-like members on your team to do things that are not the best use of the principal's time. Both of those solutions cost money. Uh, so I, you know, I think our motivating factor for us to go look at independence was we wanted more flexibility to run our team, but at the same time, we wanted more margin, not necessarily to, to line our pockets and live more affluent lives, but we, we really wanted that extra margin that we thought we were going to get in the independent space to reinvest back into our team with staff and infrastructure and, and, a, and a smaller, more dedicated client load. So that was what started us on our journey. The corporate IBD model was really the only one we looked at initially. The RAA world was just too foreign. So in that period, we really didn't even do much due diligence in the RAA space. We just looked at the different IBD options. And as I think of those today, I mean, and at that time, the main ones you're looking at are, you know, your LPL, Raymond James, Independent, Wells Fargo's Independent Channel, Finet, you've got Commonwealth, Ameriprise. Uh, and then you can probably throw Cambridge and a couple others in there um, as real players. Got it. Thank you. And do you regret now having made two moves instead of just one and kind of taking the step or the leap to the RIA space from the get-go? If I had all the information and knowledge I have now, yes, I regret it. But I, mean, I didn't. So I needed that kind of independent training wheel experience to help myself and, and the rest of our team really understand what independent is all about before we made that move. Because I would, if we had have gone from wirehouse to RA, I would have, I know I would have made a lot of mistakes. So because the whole term independence, everything outside of the wirehouse is painted with the phrase independence. And it's once you go into that world, the, the differences, I mean, they really should be called different things because they're so dramatically different and have such dramatic ramifications if you're not looking uh, or you don't know what questions to ask. Got it. And as someone in a family business myself, and because so many teams are comprised of family members, I'm curious to hear about your partnership you formed with your father, Jerry Goss. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's amazing. I'm very lucky to have an awesome relationship with my dad and in business and uh, in, in family and, and personal. It works. I've seen it not work a lot as well. So we got lucky. I think we 
established early on what each other's roles were going to be. I didn't come into the business fresh out of college. I had a decent amount of work experience before that in a different field. So I was able to bring some business operation expertise and some outside experience to the business that worked. Uh, it, it wasn't just, and I had my own set, my own objectives and the things I was doing and, and how that tied in with the team. A lot of times you see family members coming together and it's just, you know, somebody gets a piece of a book and it's just kind of how it starts. And it, it without it well-defined, I guess the best way to say it is, even though it's family, you should define it and prepare for that type of partnership, just like you would with a non-family member. I couldn't agree more. I think that was very well said and certainly similar to my personal experience. So moving on to the next area, advisors really have a multitude of options to consider when breaking away from an employee role. They can join an independent broker dealer. They can start an RIA from scratch, join an existing RIA as a 1099 or as an employee. And each option has its own sets of pros and cons. But now GAS is a $6 billion hybrid RA platform with over 100 independent advisors. So I was wondering, what drove you to create this model and what's your mission? The mission was to accomplish originally, you know, what I talked about earlier, set out to do. We wanted more margin, more flexibility, more control over our practice so that we could run it the way that we felt we wanted to. So that was the mission. Uh, the reason we've grown and added other advisors. I mean, we didn't really start out to be, you know, the, the term is often called tuck in or roll up, or we like to call it a network or a partnership RA, but that wasn't the original goal. But what we realized is after we created our own RA, just for our own, what I would call ensemble team, just, you know, cost wealth management is my personal client practice book that my dad, myself, and two other advisors are uh, affiliated with operates. The original RA was just for that. And we were at about 550-ish in, in AUM when we started it and quickly began to realize how small that is in the RAA world. A four $5 million team and the wirehouse is pretty significant in uh, the RAA world. It's not. And we were spending a lot of time and effort running our RIA. So what we made up for and maybe margin to some extent, uh, we were paying for in hours and time to run the RAA. Uh, so our, our thought was, our mission was, well, what if we could get a couple other successful advisors that are all basically capable of running their own RIA and, may, and, and have the size and scale to do it? But what if instead of all of us having redundancy and creating these on our own, what if we combined together and basically used our own collective economies of scale to negotiate better pricing, to centralize compliance and operations in a way that the team's from a client practice standpoint, wouldn't have to get involved in. Maybe there's a way to be better together and give us all more time and margin than any of us could on our own. So that was the kind of the beginning of, of Goss Advisors. It's taken off. We started, or we brought our first partner in basically January of 2016. So it's been fast growth since then. Yeah, congratulations on the very rapid growth. Very impressive to see where you're at today. But one of the main reasons that we were excited to have you join us today is that in our conversations, I noticed that you have a particularly strong grasp on the fundamental differences between an independent broker-dealer and an RIA. And especially having it from the advisor's perspective, was hoping you can elaborate on what those differences are. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's 
one of, I think, the hardest things to fully understand because it's so different than the the other world. It kind of boils down to three or maybe four points. It's pricing slash economics, flexibility or autonomy, and then in service. And those are all different in the different worlds. So to start with kind of the IBD model, again, that's the think of the LPL, corporate affiliation model, Raymond James's independent model, Ameriprise, Commonwealth, Cambridge, those kind of models. What that solves from an independent, you know, as you're thinking about independence, what it solves for is ownership. So unequivocally, you own your practice in, in that model. Branding, you're able to brand largely however you want it brand, and you get a lot of local office control. So you're able to find your own office, hire and, and fire at will, invest in local marketing events, do all sorts of things that you want to do without having to get essentially branch manager approval. Um, you really do run your own business. And that was the beginning kind of independent solution. What I didn't realize, I think, first and foremost, is when we were at the wirehouse, is that all of us are hybrid advisors. If you're a wirehouse W-2 advisor, you're hybrid. All hybrid means is that you have advisory business, which is synonymous with RAA, and broker-dealer or commission-based business, which is, you know, the BD side. So we're all hybrids. So it's just really what structure are you operating under as a hybrid? Are you a W-2? Okay. And then if you're not a W-2, if are you independent corporate? And like I said earlier, that the corporate IBD provides those things, but what it doesn't provide is compliance, flexibility, choice of platform, and then also economics and margin. And I think we'll talk about economics in a second. But so if you think about the corporate IBD world, you were in the same box, at, you know, when we were at Finat, we were in the same compliance box, policies and procedures, technology restrictions, requirements, all that as all other 13,000 wirehouse Wells Fargo advisors were. There's no difference there. So if you're unhappy with your ability to get things approved or or, or maybe do business at a different a custody platform, and you don't solve that in the IBD space, you're basically in a box. So it's it's a really good home for that advisor that just wants to own their business, is fine with kind of the, the economics that they have, as we'll talk in a little bit, the economics in the IBD, corporate IBD world are not better than the W-2 in most cases. And you really want to just run your team, but you don't want to think of having to do very much else. It's a really good fit. The hybrids or the RAA true space I like to say it kind of flips the script when you think of independence. In the W-2 and the corporate IBD world, you essentially work for the firm. I mean, if, they, if those firms change policies or procedures on you, if you don't like something about them or if they sell or somebody else buys them, your only option is to leave the firm entirely and do a full transition. When you're a hybrid, you are essentially going to those a lot of those same firms and licensing the ability to use their technology or their platforms. So, you know, you license the ability to use LPL's custody platform or and Wells Fargo's first clearing, their custody platform, or Fidelity. You're not beholden to Fidelity or one of those companies. If you call Fidelity and say, hey, can I do this from a compliance perspective? They actually tell you that we don't have a compliance department. I don't know how to answer that question. So because you're licensing that technology, you have a lot more control. You get to use, you know, essentially leverage and, and, and pricing negotiation. Pricing is never set with them. So you can really start to build the company that you want. It takes a lot more work because you have to build everything. You have to build the compliance. You have to build the technology interface between the different custodians. Um, you're really building a small regional firm or you know a small wirehouse firm, really, 
when you build an RAA. But you know, with all that work comes a lot better margin, a lot better flexibility, um, and a lot better uh, choice. Well said. And you started talking about technology. So I'm curious to hear your take about the technology platform differences at each of your stopping points, meaning the wirehouse, the corporate IBD world, as you coined it, and now the RAA space. And also to what extent you think the technology difference has helped or hurt your firm's growth? So from a technology standpoint, in the wirehouse and the and the corporate IBD world, it's for the most part, it's what they offer is what you get. If you don't like the CRM system or the technology that Wells or Morgan or UBS or you name the firm, Commonwealth or Raymond James, all the, if you don't like it, it's kind of too bad because that's you're really choosing them for their technology in addition to their other services. So each firm, a lot of them build their own in-house, which can be good in some cases and not so great in others. We didn't like a lot of the technology we had because it was just clunky. In the RA space, what's happening in the financial services world is there's this explosion of fintech like never before. So you're seeing serious venture capital money and investment going into companies that are inventing you know, very specific technology suites, you know, CRM systems just for financial advisors, risk tolerance assessment tools just for financial advisors, you know, different financial planning to all these, you know, really neat, innovative um, new technologies that are available. On the RA space, you can go get them. So if you think about it, it's kind of like if you're at a wirehouse or an IBD, it's almost like the way it was before Apple opened up the iPhone to outside app creators. It's kind of like whatever came with your phone is what you got to use. The RA space is kind of like the app store. It's like Apple doesn't really build a lot of apps and they have their kind of core fundamental apps that everybody uses, but they're not in the business of building apps. They just opened up their phone to be able to integrate with all these great new innovative applications that are being invented. And that's what's happening in the tech space. You don't really get to leverage that unless you're an RA and have the choice to kind of piece together and pull in what you want to use. Has it hurt us or helped us? I mean, it's helping, I would say. It takes a lot of time and effort to research all the different technologies. They're, right now, they're still expensive in a lot of ways. So again, scale is extremely important to be able to afford these. I think we will start to see that space move in the direction of a lot of other technologies where you get access to them for free and then you pay for premium services or are more economical than they're currently. But right now, it's available and they're awesome but you got to be really big and have a lot of revenue just to really leverage them. So let's shift to the financial differences. Motivators for an advisor going independent range from greater control, flexibility, customization, and of course, the ability to service clients better. But at the end of the day, the economics have to make sense to justify the move. What was your personal experience financially in each of your three stopping points? That's a great question. And it's what we call the myth of independence. And it's just this economic boom. It's so important to understand economics when you're looking at the independent space. And the corporate IBD world, what you're going to hear most of the time is some form of a 90% payout. But the reality in the independent space versus the wirehouse is that the payouts that you get in the corporate IBD world are not always of 100% of what the client charged. So at Wells Fargo, if you're a million dollar producer and you're paid 45%, you get $450,000 of income. And if you're a million dollar producer, that also means your clients, you have 100 million under management and you charge 1%. And the IBD world, now in order to access discretionary platforms, in order to access advisory platforms, you have to pay 
what they call admin fees uh, most of the time to access those platforms. And they usually range in the 15 to 20 basis point number. And in addition to that, are ticket charges. So all of a sudden, your 90%, let's just call it an average of 20 all in, is really of 80%. So you're starting off a lot of times where most advisors think they're going to finish up from a net standpoint. So it's very important as you're looking at the corporate, if you're looking at the corporate IBD world to fully understand, okay, what is my payout? And what is that actually that payout based off of what the client is paying? Uh, Because you always have to kind of measure that against the W2 model because you don't want to go backwards in margin. And you see that in the corporate world a lot. People go the wrong direction from a margin standpoint. On the RA space, it really is you're paid out in theory 100%. And then everything underneath that is the cost to trade, the technology that you pay for to, to bolt on. So you have to pay for everything else. So, I mean, most of the time you're trading, you know, might run you, let's call it five to six, seven basis points for, for trading cost. And then you have to build in your technology and your CRM and all these things that aren't given to you like they are in the corporate IBD world. So it's kind of hard to say, what your net is going to be, because it largely depends on how big you are, how much scale you have, or how robust you of a platform you can do it. I've seen a smaller advisors in the 60, 70 million, $80 million range run an RIA and run it extremely bare bones. And then you've got you know massive RIAs that basically are just kind of recreating the, the wirehouse model. Fair enough. And what are the aspects of fees at an independent broker dealer? So you mentioned the grid payout, but what are the other layers of um, of fees or, or compensation that the broker dealer is taking from I mean, the independent practices? In the IBD world, the, I mean, most people focus on what's my office and salaries expenses going to be, and those are important. They're not the most expensive cost of being independent. It's unequivocally the cost to operate and run uh, advisory business, and, and that those costs are you know, the access to the advisory platform, which might be, it's 20 basis points just to access your discretionary platform, or it's 35 basis points plus 10 basis points to get a third-party money manager. So, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you're spending 30, 40 basis points pretty quickly to run business that costs you essentially zero before your grid at the at the wirehouse. Other costs, I mean, most of the time, the technology and, and everything else is is covered in that. You know, you might have some three or four hundred dollar a month charges. You have to pay for E and O. But I mean, the cost you want to be most aware on is what is the cost to run advisory business in the corporate ID D space. Got it. And and are you saying that as an RIA, the there isn't a cost to access an advisory platform? Correct. Yeah, there's no cost. It's just it's the cost to execute trades. They don't charge you for, you know, when you go to Fidelity or LPL as a custodian or TD or Schwab uh, or purging, they don't charge you to be affiliated with them. Really, those, those other fees are really affiliation costs on the IBD space. So the only cost that you have to worry about from a advisory uh, business standpoint is the cost to execute trades. And that's where the bigger you are and the more assets you can bring to those firms, the more willing to work with you on discounting ticket charges or if you want to negotiate a, a flat asset-based fee, getting that as low as possible. So there really are no. The cost in the RA space is the infrastructure. It's your compliance officer. It's all the technology. It's you know the added risk that you have, you know, which is somewhat intrinsic. But, but So those are the costs you know, in that space. Okay. 
And still on the question of economics, what would you say to a wirehouse advisor who has a good amount of unvested deferred compensation or a forgivable loan balance and is attracted to the IBD space in large part because of the significant upfront transition deal that's been offered to them? We deal with that all the time. Transition assistance is really just a prepayment of of your fees that you're going to be paying the firm over the lifetime uh, that you're with that that firm. So don't ever think of transition assistance as free money. What I've seen usually is the transition assistance you're getting is usually somewhere in the one to two times the amount you're giving up or that you would be receiving as an RIA. So, you know, if you're getting 20 or 30 basis points of transition assistance, it probably means you're paying that firm 20 or 30 or 40 basis points more than you would somewhere else. So the higher the transition assistance Usually, the worse the actual net payout is. That's pretty consistent across the board. So we try to tell advisors, I mean, it's all about math. I mean, if you owe too much money back to a firm to leave, then maybe you're just not a right fit. The last thing you want to do is just basically owe a bunch of money to one firm and then just replace that with another firm and still be in the exact same situation. So either wait, save up, pay off, or look at what you're, you know, if you can do it right, and you can go from a 45% net payout in a wirehouse to say a 65 or 70% payout net after all expenses through an RIA, you know, look at that difference and how much is that? Is that amount over five years, you know, worth it to you to make a move? But chasing TA is the worst thing you can do in my opinion. And in your personal experience, taking the transition money completely out of the equation, can you estimate what your net margin difference was between operating your same practice at the independent broker dealer and then now as an RIA? Yeah, we were right around 51% as an IBD. And that was running, you know, three advisor team, one office, two assistants, not, you know, we did not have, you know, we had economical desks too. I mean, we were penny pension on, on, on that practice. So 51 to 55%. Uh, now, uh, in the RA space, my personal practice is you know, is in the net like low seventies. Um, most of the advisors that share in our network are in. It kind of depends on your size and makeup, but are in the low sixties to low seventies, which is pretty much the ceiling of where you can expect to get in any affiliation model. Wow, that example in and of itself is pretty staggering and. I'm not very good at math, but I can quickly tell what you're saying about the transition assistance um, really just being a a mortgage or a down payment on future earnings. Yeah, I mean, a million dollar producer, and you know, they give you four hundred grand, but you're making three hundred thousand less every year. It's hard, but it's it's a real check, and it's there for you, and it hits your bank account, and you know, leaving the wire, and it's scary going independent, and people, you know, they want that security, but. Thousands of advisors are doing this every day, and it's real, and these numbers are real if you do it the right way. Don't give up $3 million for $300,000 over, you know, over 10 years. Yeah, I agree. So you, at this, this stage of your career, you're quite young, and I would presume have many years left to work. But we all know that it's always important that at whatever stage in your career you are, that you have to think about the end game. So with that in mind, and with the advisors that are on your platform, what have you garnered as the difference in valuations between the same exact practice running on an IBD platform versus as an RIA? You hear about all these different multiples and 
you're worth two times here or three times here. And that's all maybe somewhat true. But I mean, the reality is it's all based on the net profitability of your firm. I mean, any business in any industry is purchased based on essentially the EBITDA of that firm. So the multiple that any buyer is going to be willing to pay is going to be based off of the profitability of your firm. If you're a $2 million producer and you're at an IBD, but after you're really only generating you know, a million dollars of, of revenue, I'm going to pay you two or three times you know, that million dollars of revenue. If you're a $2 million producer and you're at an RAA and I'm able to generate 1.6, 1.7 you know, of, of revenue, I'm going to pay you two or three times 1.6 or 1.7. So it always, always ties back to that net. You're going to see, so that's why you see higher valuations in the RA space, not because we're just magically more valuable because we're called RAAs, it's because we're more profitable. It's just another exercise and follow the money and you find the truth. <laughs> Fair enough. So one of the main objections that we hear uh, about the RAA space when we're talking with advisors is that it's incumbent upon the advisor to pull together all of the service and support that he or she needs. Things like estate and trust capabilities, investment banking, lending, cash management, etc. So someone who serves many affluent families yourself in your own practice, what have you done to ensure that you're still able to provide best-in-class services, but outside of the confines of a broker-dealer or a wirehouse? Yeah, that's so true. I mean, it's a great example of there's no such thing as a free lunch. So you have to earn that extra margin because you have to go out and build it. It's kind of like building, it's like buying a house. It's already been built versus, you know, building a house yourself versus you being the general contractor. I mean, the RA is you're the general contractor, you're the electric, I mean, you're doing it all. So there's a lot of work that goes into it, but, you know, there is a reward at the end of the day. So you have to be competent enough and ensure yourself enough and your capabilities to operate a business if all you want to do is be an advisor and you don't even want to touch that stuff, you probably need to look at the corporate IBD space or some kind of firm like ours that provides that for you. What have we been able to do is we've, with our size and growth, we're able to constantly reinvest in new technologies and new support services that the average everyday RIA can't get or is really expensive to achieve or, or acquire. So that's been you know, our, our collective scale benefits all of us because we're all able to have something that we wouldn't be able to have on our own is how that's really kind of helped us. Uh, and it's necessary to have, you know, some of these things to continue to differentiate yourself. Right. And how about today, if you look at the same exact client, let's say they have 2 million investable with GAS, can you say with confidence that you can serve that client just as well today than you could when you're at Finet or at Wells Fargo on the employee side? I can say with confidence, I can serve them better. If you think about the RA space is I'm not limited to one firm anymore. I mean, and that's what's neat about, and that's the only reason the RA can exist today like we can is because we don't have to invent anything. Fidelity, LPL, TD, they were spending hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars every year into their client-facing technology and research and, and the things that we need to service our clients. So I get the best that Fidelity offers, the best that LPL offers. I mean, I can use First Clearing, which is Wells Fargo. So I get, I mean, you don't lose anything. You just gain access to so, so much more. And then you have the whole fintech space that's you know, separate from that, that's offering cool technologies and things. I don't have to get approved from a firm-wide level to use. I can just use whatever I want as long as it's compliant and within our own firm policies. So it's great. But you know the flip side of that is with so much choice comes so much choice. And 
it takes a lot of time to you know, weed through all that and go through all that. And the average everyday advisor doesn't want to do that. And again, that's why you really got to kind of think about how are you structured? How do you create this RA so that there's somebody designated to really be kind of your in-house tech person? Right. And the final question I have for you today is with the benefit of hindsight and knowing what you know now, what additional advice would you give to prospective breakaways or really an advisor at any point along the industry landscape that's considering heading towards the direction where you sit today? You know, everybody says it's not about the money, but it really is about the money. Because if you're running a business, any business, the margins that you're able to operate that business on are the most important thing. I mean, now all of a sudden, you're, if you're starting a business, it is your responsibility to your clients and your family and to the business to make sure that business operates and runs profitably and doesn't fold in on itself. So what I would say is focus on the technology and the corporate feel of the company and all that, because all that's table stakes at this point. I mean, if they're, if you're even in the game today as a firm, you better have good technology and good service and those type of things. I mean, everybody's got that. And culture, that gets sold a lot too. But when you're independent, your culture really starts to become kind of the culture of your own business. So culture, you can add maybe a little premium, but don't add too much of a premium to that. So really, really focus on the numbers, not just the numbers of how much is my staff going to cost, but really what is it going to cost to execute client business? And what I'm after all of, after everything I've paid the firm, what do I have left to now pay my staff and run my business and, and then feed my family? had much to share about his journey to independence. Having the opportunity to hear from an owner who has run his business on both a brokerage platform as well as an RIA gave us a rare insider's view. What seemed most clear to me was the importance of being truly self-aware, to know oneself and really understand and evaluate the importance of pricing and economics, of service and of flexibility, because each model, that is the IBD space and the RIA space, offer different ways of attacking the same problem. In our next episode, Gil Baumgarten, founder of Segment Wealth Management, joins us. Gil has a really interesting story. He's a Barron's top advisor several times over who hailed from UBS and Smith Barney. In 2010, he decided to open his own firm. So here's one of the most interesting parts and something I think many of you can connect with. It took him 10 years to actually pull the trigger. That is to go from being an employee to becoming independent. What took him so long to break away? And what was it that finally inspired him to do so? We'll discuss that and much more. So I hope you'll join us. Until then... I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. And if you're not already a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. I thank you for listening. And I also want to thank wealthmanagement.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. 
This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Independence.